Hello everyone, this is Alex Trimble from The Alex Trimble Show, and I'm so glad to have you with us again today because today we have another phenomenal leader and we're going to discuss some really interesting thoughts in regards to leadership and what does it mean to be a leader within the public sector. So let's get down to it. Um, today's guest is Mr. Bill Valdez. See, Bill Valdez retired from the federal government in 2014, but is <laughs> what he did before he retired, which um, you're gonna knock your socks off. So Bill spent over 20 years in the US Department of Energy. Within this 20 year span, he has served in so many influential positions. Just to name a few, he served as the Director of the Office of Economic Impact. He served as the department's Chief Diversity Officer. He served as the Director for Planning and Analysis and the Director of Workforce Development within DOE's Office of Science. This guy has done a lot, but he didn't just stop there. See, when he retired, he went on to serve as the president of the Senior Executive Association from 2016 to 2020, and then has now gone on to co-found the Alliance of Latinx Leadership and Policy. Now, again, this man has done so much within his time what I want you to do is really pay attention and think about today's session because what Bill and I are going to discuss is what does it mean to be a leader in the public sector? See, there are so many pros and opportunities that we discuss in being a leader and, and being an effective leader who actually gets things done. But just as there are so many positive things, there's also a lot of risk that's also associated with being a leader and trying to make positive change and be successful. So I would love for you to sit back and listen and take notes and, and not only just take notes, but I also want you to reach back out and let me know what you think about this conversation. Again, you can join us on YouTube at my YouTube channel. You just type in Alex Trimble or you can go to the blog, alextrimble.com forward slash blog, and you can leave your ideas and thoughts there. But either way, I want to hear back from you and just hear what your thoughts are on this leadership question. Now, look, I'm ready to jump into this. Are you? <laughs> Given that I can't hear you, I'm assuming that you are. So with no further ado, here's my good friend, Bill Valdez. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trimble from The Alex Trimble Show, and I am so happy to be have one of uh, good, I want to say a hopefully soon friend of mine, um, and also a friend of a good friend of mine. So I think we're already kind of family. Um, Mr. Bill Valdez has served as an executive within the federal government, as well as an adjunct professor at American University, and actually just co-founded and is the chairman of the Alliance of Latinx Leadership and Policy. I'm really interested in talking to you a little more about that. But before we do anything else, how are you doing today, kind sir? I'm doing great. Thank you, Alex. Uh, how about you? I am doing well. We're doing well, right? We're, 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 not, we're not leaving it at the I'm, I'm alive. We, we, are, we are blessed and we're doing well to be here today. Yeah, yeah. I can say the same thing. I mean, you know, I always say, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I can't have any complaints, you know, because I've been blessed and I've been given so much and so many opportunities in life. Uh, so, you know, I think that's, you know, uh, one of the things that we need to focus on in this, 
in particularly this time, you know, that we all have so many blessings, even even amid a pandemic, and, you know, an economic downturn. Uh, those of us who are fortunate enough to be in, in positions like you and I are, you know, we, we should be grateful, you know. Uh, and I'm in a hundred percent lockstep with you. And you, you, you know, as we, we jump off, I, I just wanted to maybe just start with Department of Energy. So you, you served as a, an executive leader there. And uh, what is it like to be an executive leader at such a influential agency within the United States? What is it like to the, the day-to-day, I guess? Yeah. So it's what you make of it. Um, so I always thought about it this way, that there are leaders and there are managers. And, uh, and there's a real sharp distinction between the two. Uh, managers, you know, take care of the day-to-day operations and, you know, uh, and leaders, you know, have to do some of that. You know, they have to be involved in the operations and supervision of people and stuff like that. But what really distinguishes a leader from a manager is the strategic thinking, the ability to influence policy, the ability to, you know, really shape things. And if you're a leader, a senior executive in the federal government at an agency like the Department of Energy, and you're in the right position, then you have influence and strategic capabilities that are outsized of anything that you can really get in the private sector. So think about it this way. The Department of Energy is a 37, 30, it's probably about $40 billion entity right now. Um, it's, it's an international organization. It influences the world's energy policies, the world's climate policies. And uh, you're part of that. And if you're working at a you know, major corporation like Microsoft or Google or Apple, any place like that, you have influence, but you only have influence within your sphere, you know, within your industry. Mm -hmm. And you certainly don't have the ability to look, you know, beyond your industry. Um, And so uh, it's extraordinary, uh, you know, the scope and scale of what you're able to do if you take advantage of it. Now, in my mind, there are two types of leaders. There are those who are delegators and those who are micromanagers. And in my experience in the federal government, too many of the senior leaders are micromanagers. They just can't let go, right? They just believe that, uh, you know, they have to have their fingers on everything. And when you have your fingers on everything, you know, you lose sight of the forest, you know, for the trees. And so, you know, whenever I teach, you know, leadership at American University or other other venues, I always say, you know, if you really want to be a true leader in the federal government, private sector, or whatever, you need to be a delegator. You need to trust your people, and you need to ensure that you empower your people. I was really grateful yesterday when I saw President Biden 
at the State Department talking to the State Department career employees. And he used the word empowerment. I'm going to empower you to do your job. I get chills just thinking about that because I've never heard a president say that before uh, and say to the career employees, you are empowered to achieve my agenda and to achieve the agenda on behalf of the American people. You can't do that if you're a micromanager. You can only do that if you're a strategic, well, and, and willing to delegate and empower your people. So uh, you've shared a lot for us to just jump on and, and start going. Um, I think the first direction I'd like to go is, I think you made a really good case for the, why someone wanna be a public servant. Um, if you work within the private sector, again, you may have a vast reach within an IBM or a Microsoft or whatever it may be, but within the government, you just have, uh, you touch so, you have the opportunity to touch so many different areas and have a positive impact. Um, yet, if we're talking about specifically the federal government, there, I, there's been a growing trend of individuals saying, well, yes, I want to have that impact, um, but why should I be an SES? Um, I could be a 15, a GS 15, or, you know, a more senior level leader and be paid well and still do good. So why would someone want to be an executive leader in the federal government? It is a personal choice. Um, so there are roughly 8,000 uh, senior executives in the federal government. There are 2.1 million employees. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's highly selective, a highly, uh, you know, it's, it's elite, okay? But, you know, there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is that the SES are the career officials who intersect with the political leaders, okay? So within the federal government, it's a little known secret that the, uh, the political leaders are the ones who really make the policy budget programmatic decisions. The career folks are the ones who execute it. Okay. The people who influence the political leaders most are the SES because they're the ones that the political leaders go to and say, okay, the boss wants to do X, Y, and Z. How do we do that? So you have to have both the knowledge of the mechanisms and the processes of government, but you also have to have the political savvy and the ability to work with the political leadership to achieve the political leader's goals. Um, that's a delicate balance, you know, balance. And it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's difficult to do under some circumstances because maybe it doesn't comport with your value system, right? Or uh, you think that the policy is headed in the wrong direction. Um, or, you know, get, you know, any other reasons, okay? Doesn't matter. You have to execute that policy, okay? So I became an SES in the Clinton administration. 
And, you know, we were working on climate change and, you know, energy efficiency and energy renewables and, you know, making sure that science and technology were at the forefront of the agenda. I served some time at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy uh, and, you know, worked with uh, Vice President Gore, you know, on some initiatives because uh, he was really behind, you know, even though it's kind of came a joke, you know, he really helped sponsor the internet at its earliest, you know, birth. Um, really exciting things. And then you have the Bush administration come in. And Bush, as you recall, was a climate doubter at the beginning. Um, and it was only at the end of his administration that he um, said, yeah, I, I kind of get it now. You know, uh, there is climate change. But his administration at the beginning, you know, was anti-climate change. And so the office that I was working at the time, the Office of Science, was the lead in the federal government to help develop policies for international climate change protocols. And uh, so we had to be really, really careful in what we did. Um, and then Vice President, I mean, uh, President Bush, you know, latched on to the idea of the hydrogen economy, right? Uh, he really, somebody got in, you know, worm got into his ear that hydrogen, hydrogen gas, you know, uh, was the next big thing, you know, for the energy economy. Uh, and so we were, we were given new budget authority, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to do research on hydrogen, you know, in terms of fuel cells and driving cars and things like that. And we all knew it was, it was a bunch of hooey. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, you know, this, this is never going to work. <laughs> and, uh, but we had to do it because that's what the president wanted, you know? So, uh, you know, you, those are the choices you have to make, you know, when you're a leader. But how exciting, right? You know, navigating those, you know, those turbulent winds and things like that. And eventually, we did get the president to see reason on hydrogen, you know, and on climate change. So you, you have one, because I am a... Um a former federal employee, I do have to say thank you for making that note. Uh, I think people, not I think, people forget a lot of the time that government employees, whether it be federal, state, local, the, the career employees are implementing policy. It's the politicals who, who develop the policy. And yet a lot of people are mad at the, at the career <laughs> folks. Like we're just doing what who was the person who was elected to do told us to do. Um, so thank you for putting uh, put, say, saying that. Um, you talked about influence. You know, again, you've worked at the White House, um, which is always going to be have you know politics around it. Um, senior executive within the energy, you were the president of the Senior Executives Association. Um, influence is something that is critical. So, I guess what I want to ask you is two questions, and you can take whichever one you want to take at this point. Um, one: How do you go about building? growing your influencing skills. And maybe you can tell us how, how you went about doing that. And then two, I want to make sure I put it out there so I don't forget. Um, 
you talked about someone got into the president's ear and got him thinking a particular idea. Um, I was speaking to the, the now former chief of staff of a large agency, and I asked her what was the most difficult part about her job. And she said it was keeping, um, making sure that um, her principal didn't make promises that he was supposed to make, like keeping people away from him. So <laughs> I want I want to get back to that question. Like, how do you, how would you keep people, keep bad ideas out of someone else's head? So we can start whichever one you want to go. Yeah. Well, uh, the, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the first question first. Okay. Um, you know, during one of my performance reviews, uh, uh, my supervisor said, you know, Bill, uh, you're one of the most creative people I've ever supervised. And I said, hmm, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> and she said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I've always been a person who does things until I'm told not to do them. And I, uh, you know, you remember the uh, movie Sixth Sense, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I see dead people. Well, I see connections. Um, and that is my secret superpower uh, as, a, as a leader. Uh, it's why I, I gravitated towards strategic planning and, you know, uh, policy analysis because it's, you know, we all have innate abilities and my innate ability was to see connections, to make, you know, put, put the dots together. And so when I'm given a task, you know, I'm always looking at a systems level view of things and how, how things are interrelated. And so my very first position in the, uh, as an SES, was working as uh, the director of policy and analysis within the Office of Science at the Department of Energy. And at that time, uh, the department, I mean, the, uh, I was, the, the Government Performance Results Act of 1993 was being implemented. And I was given the responsibility for implementing GIPRA, you know, at DOE. Uh, and uh, at that time, as you'll recall, uh, GIPRA uh, had just, you know, it, was, it was passed in 93, but uh, they and did- what's GIPRA again? So the Government Performance Results Act, okay? It's the Accountability Act for the federal government. Uh, and the, uh, 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 the, the act started as a, you know, series of pilot programs. So from 93 till you know, like 98, uh, they, you know, agencies were allowed to do a bunch of, you know, pilot programs. But then in 98, we were expected to fully implement GIPRA, uh, which meant strategic planning, you know, metrics, accountability, uh, and all of, all of which was tied to the budget. You know, a lot of people are like, this is very bureaucratic, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But the, the net intended effect of it, it was to make agencies more accountable and to also uh, have them focus on their mission, you know, tie their budget to their mission and have societal outcomes that result 
from your budget, right? So instead of counting widgets, like, you know, how many reports that you produced, how many, you know, products did you get out the door, that kind of thing, they wanted you to focus on things like, is the government uh, delivering value to the taxpayer, you know? And in the case of the Department of Energy, were we doing, you know, were, were we achieving energy security? You know, were we, you know, getting us off oil, you know, um, were we, you know, transitioning to a, a renewables economy, things like that. Um, so my office happened to come with a small budget, uh, a discretionary budget and just a million dollars. And so I asked my boss, uh, you know, what do I do with this? You know, and she said, well, whatever you want, you know, uh, I, 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 she, she didn't know it was there, you know, but she said, you know, uh, uh, it's your budget. So figure it out. So what I decided to do was to do original social science research into how the Department of Energy and specifically the Office of Science could develop the the analytical tools, the methodologies uh, to understand our societal benefits uh, to, to which, you know, to meet the GIPRA requirements. And so over the course of about eight years, I funded about 50 social science projects uh, because social scientists are very cheap. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, we developed uh, what was called um, uh, the Washington, Washington ran Washington uh, re evaluation network. You know, uh, I did that on my own, right? Uh, and pretty soon, I was holding symposiums in Korea, Japan, Europe, uh, China. Uh, I developed a network of thousands of scientists, mm -hmm. you know, social scientists around the world. I did that on my own, you know, because I could. And I had the, I had the platform and the credibility to be able to do that. So fast forward to 2004, and I get a call from the president's science advisor. And this will answer your second question. Um, and the president's science advisor had heard that I was doing this. And he was interested in the answer to the following question. When I get asked by the president how much money, you know, if, if I'm given $100, you know, of extra budget authority, how much of that should I devote to biology? How much to chemistry? How much to physics? You know, do I have an answer for that question? And he said, currently, you know, stick a finger in the wind and figure it out, right? Uh, and he said, but I hear you're doing some research and funding some research that could help me answer that question through data and analytics. Okay. And I said, well, actually I am. Uh, and so he said, okay, I want to form an interagency working group that was called the science of science policy interagency working group. I want you to co-chair it with somebody from NSF and I want you to work this problem for me. And so we did. And we pulled together all the agencies in the federal government uh, and all the people who cared about this issue. 
we drafted a report uh, that got a lot of press, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then uh, the science, President of Science Advisor, Jack Marburger, who was one of my personal heroes and no longer is with us, uh, you know, funded, I mean, created the program, a, a program at National Science Foundation to support this effort. Okay. So what did I learn from this? One, take initiative. Two, you know, use the available resources that I have. Wait till somebody tells me to stop. And then, uh, uh, by coincidence, somebody put a worm in Jack Marburger's ear and said, hey, this is going on at the Department of Energy. You know, you may, you may want to learn about it. And th then it became an interagency, you know, effort on its own, a legitimate one. Nobody told me I could do this, you know. But because I was an SES, because I had budget, because I had smart people working with me, and because I had the initiative to be able to do this, I did it. So, one, again, that's, I, that's really cool. <laughs> People have these stories to tell. Um, and two, you, you said you had, you, you gave, laid out a great reason for becoming an SES, the opportunity that, can, uh, that you can have with, with those, what, come, what comes along with being an SES. Um, and I would assume that you'd also be saying that, you know, almost from any position, if you take the initiative, if you work with whatever resources you have, and you you take some some risk that you can do big you can do big things you can you can have um, projects whether they are quote unquote successful or not um, one you start to build your name and two you get experience um, actually a, a friend of mine was just kind of really worried about trying something new and they were talking to their mom and their mom said um, it's really cool actually her mom the, the, her mom said um, you're scared because you haven't done it yet right so so try it you know, then see what happens. So I, I, I loved your, your story. Well, uh, but it comes with risk. Okay. Mm -hmm. So eventually, uh, so this was all about accountability, right? Uh, developing accountability frameworks. Uh, and the dirty little secret <laughs> of government <laughs> programs, they don't want to be accountable, you know? They want to be able to spend their money in the right in 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 their own way, but they don't want Congress knowing about their failures. They don't want to have any kind of scorecard that is like you know Department of Energy is doing a better job than National Science Foundation, right? Mm -hmm. they, mm, <laughs> you know they don't want that at all. Um, and eventually, this caught up with me. Uh, because uh, the people uh, at the Department of Energy, you know, uh, thought I went too far um, wow. in lifting the transparency, you know, of performance at the department. And so, you know, uh, they took the opportunity of the shift in administrations from uh, the Bush administration to the uh, Obama administration to gently ease me out of that role and put me in a, in a much different role and let everything that I had done prior kind of 
wither away. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was brilliant bureaucratic <laughs> you know, maneuvering on their part. Um, you know, and I was sad, you know, about it. Uh, but, you know, the effort, the science of science policy effort remains, you know, uh, the research is still being done um, at NSF. Uh, there is still some interagency cooperation. So there was a legacy, you know, that I left. Um, and, you know, you just move on because that's what you have to do, you know. Uh, well, how do you move on? Like, like you say, that that was your baby and, and it was it was successful. And then to be moved um, because of its success I think would hurt a lot of people. So how would you recommend someone moves on from something like that? Thank you for tuning in to the Alex Tremble show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Federal open season is over, but you can apply for WEPA life insurance year round. WEPA has been insuring the future of federal employees for more than 75 years. WEPA can be used as a supplement or a replacement for Fegley and can cost less. Last year, members who switched saved $375 on average. Apply for WEPA Group Term Life Insurance and see how much you could save by visiting waepa.org today. The results are in. Research has found that networking is one of the four skills absolutely required to successfully advance in your career. However, when asked, most government employees state that they don't network because they believe that networking is for extroverts and for people who care more about their own careers than the organization's mission. But what if there was a way to ethically network without looking self-absorbed and being a super extrovert? Well, there is. Alex Tremble has created a seven-week online networking course specifically designed to give ambitious leaders like yourself the skills needed to become a strategic networker. This course uses time-tested and research-backed strategies to help you identify, build, and maintain critical relationships with influential leaders. Visit alextremble.com courses networking to learn more about his networking model today. Use the discount code podcastfamily on the checkout screen to receive a 20% discount. Don't delay. Enroll today at alextremble.com courses networking. And now back to the Alex Tremble Show with your host, Alex Tremble. Well, you, you don't have any choice. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I was comforted by the fact that I knew that, that the legacy, you know, uh, remained. Uh, but then I got put into, you know, they, they dangled, you know, another cool opportunity for me. Okay. Um, and, uh, this was in the area of workforce development, uh, for the, for, for the STEM community, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics community. And so I ran those programs at the department, uh, for a while, which was really cool. Uh, and then, uh, I was given the opportunity to take over an office that's an assistant secretary level office. Uh, that was temporarily vacant, uh, that was the chief, you know, it was the Office of Economic Impact and Diversity. And that office had uh, 
uh, a uh, uh, the principal, uh, which is a Senate confirmed person, uh, is the chief diversity officer for the department, runs the small business office, runs the EEO office, um, and runs the minority serving institutions uh, program at the department. So, you know, I was able to take take on the leadership role there for two years. Uh, and it was way cool, you know. Uh, and so, you know, the thing about being an SES is uh, that you serve at the pleasure, right? There are only three reasons you can be dismissed as an SES. Poor performance, you know, misconduct, and refusing a directed reassignment, right? And so I was given three directed reassignments in my career <laughs> and you either accept them or you leave, you know? So you also talked about risk, the risk in, in trying to do something great. And you made me think. So today, as we're recording this it is February 5th, which is now approximately, I think it's five days since the military coup in Myanmar. Um, and if anyone's at this time, hopefully it's over by this time, but if you, if you know what's going on, there is a coup in Myanmar. Um, and we're not gonna get into the politics, but I, this morning as I was thinking and getting ready for this interview, um, I was having this conversation, internal conversation with, um, with risk. Uh, the reality is, is um, Aung San Suu Kyi, their de facto president, um, is, doesn't have as much power as people think. Um, the military in the constitution has 25% of all votes in order to do anything significant, you need at least six, six, 76%, so they have a block, right? Um, they have a lot of influence. And so I was having this conversation with someone yesterday and they said, this is why I won't take a position, I won't take a role, unless I know I have the actual power and resources to make sure that I'm successful. Um, and I think that's an interesting thought, right? Because I've been speaking to a lot of people who, who even encouraged me on some things that have been offered my way is, hey, if you take this job, will, your face will be out there. Are you sure that you'll have the resources? Are you sure that you'll have the the uh, actual authority to make things happen? Um, and so the question I have for you is, as a leader, how do you know when you should take the risk um, of taking an assignment where you're not sure if you have the resources and authority to be successful? Um, but on the other hand, if you don't go out there and try it, who will, right? Yeah, it, it really is circumstantial and, you know, individual choice based. Um, I, had, I had a neighbor, uh, great guy. Uh, he was a GS-14 at Department of Education. He was responsible for the Title I report at the Department of Education. Had been doing it for 20 years. I don't have any idea what Title I is. Uh, and I have no desire to know what Title I is. But this guy, he got up every morning. It was the best job in the world because he knew exactly what he was going to be doing. My experience is 
the vast majority of federal employees, particularly at the GS level, are exactly like my, my former neighbor, you know, happy to go in, punch the clock, you know, do, do a great job, you know, delivering great value to the American taxpayer, but it's a, it's a nine to five thing, right? And uh, will never stick his head above the bunker. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's great. That's great. But there are people who see that there is value to taking risk. And those are the people who make the best leaders. Okay. So it's, it's a managed risk kind of calculation. And uh, I don't know that there's any formula for it, but, um, and that's why I say it's an individual and, and depending on circumstances, but I've had many, you know, I've, I've mentored hundreds of people, you know, over my career. And one of the questions that I always get is, you know, you know, how do I get ahead, right? Well, the only way you get ahead is by distinguishing yourself. And you only distinguish yourself by taking risk. I mean, that, that it, I'm sorry, you know? Uh, you know, I mean, just on a personal level, um, you know, in uh, 1984, my wife and I made a decision that we were going to pack up our family, which at the time was two kids under the age of five, and move to D.C. so I could go to graduate school. My wife was an attorney, had a good job with the state of, state of Texas government. I was a newspaper reporter, journalist, uh, but I decided uh, that I wanted to be the person on the other end of the microphone, right? I wanted to be making the news versus reporting on the news because uh, I saw so many, so many, you know, I was reporting on so many people doing such cool stuff. And I said, you know, I, I, I want a chance at that. You know, I want a little bit of that sugar, you know. So, <laughs> um, so I, I packed up my family. We moved to D.C. so I could go to graduate school. That's a risk, right? I didn't know anybody here in D.C., you know, um, those are the kind of personal choices you have to make, right? If you want to get ahead. And, you know, I, 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 like I said, it's, uh, it's personal, but you have to make those choices for yourself. Calculate that risk. Um, if, if I can share one instance I had in my career, and I'd love to just get, kind of get your maybe initial gut reaction. Um, when I was really young in my career, um, I oversaw exec ed for um, a capital agency. I was 23 when I got the job. And it, there was a lot of, in the past, nothing ever happened. And so when I created this program, I had to work with all the SESs, both career and politicals, um, to understand what their needs were and get them on board and get the buy-in and start moving us forward. And, um, you know, in the beginning, it was they were so skeptical and they didn't want to meet. But when I, I had those conversations, I was able to encourage them to look. This time is different. We're going to do this differently, and I feel like what, at the end of my time there, I had definitely made a, a number of big successes, and I was successful in my position. But some of the big ticket items that I was pushing for never came right, and 
I was talking to the then director of uh, one of the other the agency I was work, working with. And I told him, like, I felt, I almost felt like a liar because I had been promoting, like, look, no, we are doing this this time. I know the leadership, the leadership supports it. We're going to do this. And they, they finally agreed with me. They said, okay, we're going to believe in you. And then the leadership didn't do what they were supposed to do. And it didn't go through. And I felt, I felt like a liar. And I felt like, man, should I be using the, my gift and, you know, getting people to buy, to buy in on things? I try to be more careful with that. Or is it my job? When I'm in the job, my job is to get people to buy in on these programs. Like, what are your just your reactions from something? Yeah. something so like that? it actually relates to the first question you asked me. You know, why would somebody want to be an SES, right? Uh, because uh, for that exact reason, um, when you're a GS employee, you're at the mercy of this SES and the political leaders. Okay, they can say the right things, but they can cut you off at the knees. Okay. So, um, and I've seen, I've seen it happen all the time. Right. Uh, you know, so again, in the federal government, you know, the vast majority of people lack the kind of initiative that you were demonstrating there. Okay. Uh, and those that have done it tend to have an experience like yours, you know, they get burned. Right. Uh, so it discourages initiative. Um, one of the things that I'm really thinking is going to happen as a result of the pandemic is that that's going to happen less and less because, you know, the, we're going to have a new way of doing work, you know, in the federal government. Um, and, and the influence of the millennials and the Gen Zs, uh, is going to be huge in this area meaning that, you know, I was already seeing it when I was in government and I saw it, I've seen it since then, since I've been out of government, that the millennials and Gen Zs, and this is well documented, don't want to be in public service if it means pushing paper, right? They want to be part of the process. They want to be included in the, you know, in the policy making, in the decision making. And so one of the things that's, that's happened because of the pandemic is that you know the, the typical hierarchical uh, you know structures of agencies has broken down, and now those agencies have gone to teaming, you know, and virtual teams, and you know people meeting by Zoom and meeting you know in small groups, rather than st being stuck in their cubicles on on assignments all day. I was talking with uh, uh, some senior executives at two different agencies, Department of Energy and Department of Labor about this. And I said, so what's the impact that you've seen on, you know, the, the workforce in terms of, uh, you know, all the telework and, you know, uh, that's been going on. And they said, you know, initially we were really scared, you know, because we thought this is just going to give people an opportunity to goof off. But what we're finding is that performance is up, output is up, you know, people are happier, you know, they're really working together as teams in ways that we never had them do it before. I think this is a structural change and that people like you in the future are going to have more say, you know. And so, you know, the other, the other part about this is, is that um, 
the structures and the training of particularly SES are such that it really is a command and control environment. Um, and this comes out of the whole, uh, you know, uh, military outlook on life. Um, all of our agencies, uh, except the small ones like, you know, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, you know, SEC, places like that, uh, are essentially holding companies, okay? So you have the Department of Homeland Security, you know, 22 separate agencies tossed together, Department of Energy, seven different agencies tossed together. Uh, they don't really relate to each other, right? And so there's this top, you know, like it's exactly like a holding company in, in the private sector where they, you know, you have a corporate entity that tries to, you know, do things. And then the authority flows down to the major programs. Well, that sets up the command and control structure. And the, all the SES that you know in the federal government were raised in that kind of environment. Uh, I wasn't, okay? I entered the federal government uh, in, uh, uh, at the age of 40. And I'd worked in the private sector. I'd been a journalist, like, like I mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't bought into this whole command and control structure. Um, so the, uh, so I was, I was somewhat of an outlier, you know, but I found allies, you know, who were, who were like me, but I wasn't the typical SES. Okay. Um, having said that, so, but I do think that the Gen X and the Gen Z's, uh, are going to, the Gen X, I'm sorry, uh, is a lost cause. Because they're they're sort of in that same mind mind meld, okay. But the the millennials and the Gen Zs, uh, they're raised in a different way, and their concepts of leadership and teamwork and everything like that, I think, is is going to improve the federal government. Well, again, you've 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 shared so much with us today, and thank you for your time already. I, so I know we're going to wrap up soon, but I do want to spend just a minute talking about the Alliance of Latinx Leadership and Policy. I'd love to, one, let's just start with what is that and what are you guys trying to do? <laughs> so uh, the federal government um, is essentially, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk of systemic racism, okay, in society, okay? And uh, the federal government, uh, both intentionally and unintentionally, is one of the great enablers of systemic racism in the United States. You take an agency like, the, like USDA. Uh, USDA is often called the plantation because uh, it's always been staffed by uh, folks and led by folks who care more about, you know, uh, Southern white farmers uh, and corporate farmers than they do about underrepresented farmers, okay? Black and Hispanic, you know, Native American uh, populations. Uh, that's intentional racism, intentional systemic racism, you know, that's enabled through government policies and programs. Um, then you take a place like the Department of Energy, 
which was uh, uh, founded on the belief that you know uh, science matters, you know, and and uh, open ideas, you know, competition for ideas is really important. Okay, but it's elitist. Okay. Because the scientists who work there, the people who lead that organization, come from Harvard, MIT, Yale, Stanford, uh, and they perpetuate a system that excludes HBCUs, you know, historically black colleges and universities, that doesn't hire, you know, employees of color because they are, you know, they don't come from the right school. Uh, and that uh, don't get the same program funding that uh, uh, you would see in, you know, at, at, you know, at major universities that do research that you would see at, a, you know, Tuskegee University, for example, okay? So that's intentional, unintentional, right? If you ask somebody at Department of Energy, are, are you a racist, they go, no. You know, I'm just doing my job, but they're perpetuating programs that enable systemic racism in the United States. Okay, and actually, uh, this was commented on by uh, uh, in, in the new uh, executive order uh, that uh, uh, President Biden just issued uh, on diversity and equity, okay? I, I encourage everybody to go look at that. And section three of that executive order lays this all out. It's really, it's really a pretty amazing document. And uh, uh, so uh, what we decided was that we had to get Latino policy experts into the most senior level positions in the federal government because Latinos are the most underrepresented group in the federal government. Uh, this, they're 18% of the civilian labor force, uh, but only 8% of the uh, federal government. Uh, when you get to the senior executive roles, uh, only 4% of uh, Latinos, of uh, senior executives are Latino. And this has consequences because people hire people who they're familiar with and people give money to programs and institutions that they're familiar with. And so in some cases it's intentional, right? Uh, you know, I'm not going to give a black farmer in, you know, Alabama money. That's intentional systemic racism, but the other side of it is, you know, at the Department of Energy, they make funding decisions because they all came from, you know, elite institutions. And that's the world they know, you know, and when you point that out to them, they go, well, it's open competition. Sorry, it isn't. Okay. So the only way around this is to attract really intelligent highly qualified people to be in these kinds of programmatic senior leadership positions. Okay. So uh, that's what the Alliance of Latinx leadership and policy is all about. 
we're going to do two things. We're going to encourage a uh, policy, I mean, a leadership pipeline for those uh, Latino professionals who wish to uh, enter into public service. And we're going to encourage them and nurture them and, you know, drive them into the right positions. Uh, and then second, uh, we're going to provide a platform for Latinx policy uh, professionals to to uh, uh, advocate for things like, you know, equity in education, equity in health, you know, get outside of the normal, you know, uh, you know, issues that people talk about, which is immigration and housing and, you know, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, get expand the universe so that people can, you know, fully embrace a, a, an agenda for the Latinx community that uh, lifts up the community as a whole. Okay. Um, so that's why we did it. Well, thank, thank you not only for, for everything you've spent, all the time and energy you spent with us today, but thank you also for the time and energy you put into creating this organization. Cause again, you're the chairman, but you also co-founded it. So, you, I mean, like you said, you took an idea and, and did it. You, you took risk and, and the, everything you just shared is extremely important. And I'm hoping that everyone who's listening today, um, and I'm asking everyone who's listening today to, to go to your website, um, latinxpolicy.org, um, and just learn more about what's going on and how you can help. Um, because either, again, equity is extremely, extremely important. Um, look, I, we're running up against our time. I know you have many other really important meetings to go to, but I do want to open it back up to you. Is there any final thoughts, ideas, um, anything you'd like to share with our guests? Uh, yeah, um, just one thing. Um, and that is that we just went through four years of national trauma and disaster. And, uh, and a lot of people have said, you know, uh, is, 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 is it, repairable, you know, uh, can we restore a sense of national unity and, and can we, you know, undo the damage of the past four years? I have to say, you know, it's only been what, three weeks, uh, since, uh, Joe Biden became president, but I'm already seeing signs of that. And so I would really encourage all of your listeners to re-examine, you know, their, their goals, their life goals, and to recommit them, you know, to uh, public service in whatever form that takes, whether it's going to work for the federal government, whether it's being a part of a, a nonprofit, uh, or even in a corporate, you know, setting, you know, because lots of corporations are now, you know, doing this social values kinds of investments. And so, you know, I think we're at a stage in our national history where we have a really, we really have an opportunity for, for reflection and renewal. And so I just encourage all of your folks to, you know, uh, think about it within the context of their own lives. 
Well, again, thank you so much, Bill, for leaving us with those words. I want to thank you for spending again time with us today. And thank everyone who's listening. Thank you for spending the time to, to listen and learn from Bill today. Please, as always, don't just look back, reach back. That means if you found anything helpful in this conversation, anything of value, of benefit in this conversation, don't keep it for yourself Find someone else to share this with to make sure they get the same value and ask them to do the same exact thing. If you are interested and if you're a federal employee looking to, to just learn the, the, the ins and outs of being an effective uh, leader in the federal government, not only look at the Alex Trumbull show, but check out Fed Upward. Uh, my good friend over there is doing some great stuff and she has some great programming. Um, as always, I leave you with uh, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. <laughs> Bye. See you, Bill. See everyone. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thealextrembleshow.com and be sure to share what you've learned with at least one other person today. Check back on the first and third Wednesday of each month for new episodes. Until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. <laughs>